Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, I'm joined by William Matthews. William is a fellow in the Anthropology of China at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and is joining us to talk about his new book, Cosmic Coherence A Cognitive Anthropology Through Chinese Divination, which was published in 2021 by Bergen Books. Cosmic Coherence presents a cognitively grounded approach to the anthropology of cosmology through eight trigrams divination. Through ethnography and history of aging divination in China, William Matthews Matthews looks at how diviners explain the cosmos in terms of a single substance that unfolds across scales of increasing complexity to create natural phenomena and human experience. Combined with an understanding of human cognition, William's research shows how this conception of scale offers a new way for for anthropologists and other social scientists to think about cosmology, comparison, and cultural difference. I highly recommend this book for anyone interested in the anthropology of China and wider theoretical discussions on the anthropology of ontology and cosmology. Today, I have the pleasure of discussing the contents of this fantastic book in more detail with William Matthews. William, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for asking me. I'd like to begin by asking you about your background and research interests. Um, what was it that drove you to, to, to study this topic of divination in China? Well, originally, actually, when I started my PhD, it wasn't going to be about divination at all. So to say the book is based sort of initially on, on, on the research I did for my PhD. Um, originally, though, I was going to study the revival of tea houses in China and um, the cosmology behind tea culture and in relation to food and health. Um, so before I started field work, I went on a, a trip to a few different cities to try and choose a good field site. Um, and on that trip, um, my partner and I, we went to um, Changsha, where she was doing some research for her master's dissertation. And um, while we were walking around Changsha, we went to visit a temple. Um, and there were some fortune tellers by the temple. And she said, oh, shall we go and get our fortunes told? Um, so we went and did that. And it was very, very interesting. Um, and I, I was fascinated by the whole, the whole thing because the um, what I was expecting, I suppose, was some sort of quite vague crystal ball kind of exercise. It wasn't like that at all. And the, um, the fortune teller, sort of get, using our birth dates, gave us a very detailed description of sort of our our fate in ten year cycles. This is using a system called uh, eight characters um, divination paths. Um, and the complexity of it um, and the detail of it I found fascinating Uh, so then 
you know, I, I, for the rest of that trip, I went to a few other different places. And in the end, I decided to go and do field work in Hangzhou um, because Hangzhou is famous for, uh, for green tea. Um, but when I got there, I'd already sort of decided I wasn't going to do anything about tea houses. I was more interested in fortune telling. Um, and I explained this to the, uh, the, uh, one of the people I was living with. And he then said he'd take me around to a few different sort of temples and things in the city. And he took me to a, a nearby Buddhist temple. And I noticed there, there was a little sort of pedestrian street nearby where there are a few fortune tellers um, working by the side of the road. And so when I went back there myself, I thought, oh, well, I'll go and I'll go and get my fortune told again and see like what that's like. And that was where I met um, this uh, this diviner, uh, Master Tao, who features very prominently in, in the book, um, who would sit by the side of the road. And um, he was sort of keen to sort of explain to me what he was doing. And I, I, you know, I had my fortune told and I said I was very interested and keen to learn more. And he offered to... He said, well, he basically said I could go back and um, go back to see him regularly and he would teach me about how it all worked, um, which was how my actual sort of research project shifted into that and I ended up doing that and not really doing anything about tea at all. Um, so that's what sort of, that's what made me interested in that. I'd been interested in China for quite a while by that point. Um, but I've, I've always been interested in questions of cosmology and things like that. And this actually seemed a, a more interesting and probably better way to actually understand Chinese cosmology and how it was changing in the modern day and so on um, in a much more in-depth way than looking at the revival of tea house culture would have done. Um, which would have turned into a, I think, probably very interesting, but quite different kind of project. Yeah. I'm going to have to ask you here before we move forward, William, what did the fortune teller tell you? Oh, well, the, um, the first one that um, I saw in Changsha told me that I would be very rich and that therefore I should pay double the advertised price because I'd make the money back. Uh, but the uh, <laughs> uh, Master Tao, when I first went to see him, um, I, I asked about where I was still trying to find a sort of permanent place to, to live while doing fieldwork in Hangzhou. And I asked about that. And he, he gave me an answer which was didn't, didn't quite work, work out. But um, later on, though, once, I, once I'd been seeing him for you know several days a week for eight or nine months, I asked, uh, I asked him to tell my fortune again, and this was about uh, that was actually about how my PhD project was going because it was a sort of a point where, which I think a lot of anthropologists get to in fieldwork, where you become convinced that actually you've got nothing worth saying at all about anything, and uh, you've just made terrible decisions, and should you quit the whole thing, and so, um, and that was what I asked about, and he gave me this really detailed spot on kind of analysis of that he said um he said well um first thing you know tomorrow 
between 3 and 5 p.m., you'll have some communication from your the, the category in fortune telling would be like your senior at, uh, at work. Yeah? Uh, and this will prompt you to make some kind of decision. Uh, and then you'll be, you know, you're going to be thinking about this. This was in about May. You're going to be thinking about this um, until about June or July, by which point you'll have had sufficient conversations with um, friends and family to kind of move you towards something and you'll have resolved the issue sometime in August. And that was, it was spot on. I got, I got an email from my supervisor the next day when I looked at my phone at about 3.30 or something. So just in, in the right sort of time. Um, and that sort of pushed me to sort of think about sort of, you know, rethinking what I was doing. Took a break from field work, which coincided with that period. And then, yeah, by August, I finally felt, okay, now I've got a good idea what I'm doing and it's, uh, it's going so so yeah, yeah that was pretty impressive as well but uh, that's pretty incre- that's yeah. very incredible and that's really great that um you did get that that fortune told because um as you were describing that feeling of insecurity absolutely i can i can relate to that and it's really difficult to sometimes see beyond it so um that's master tao definitely <laughs> sounds like sounds like someone who saved you and um um, but let's talk more about, you know, what is it that Master Tao, for example, or these other diviners that you ought to know, what is it that they're doing? Um, can you give us a brief background about um, about Chinese divination through the eight trigrams prediction and how it's practiced in China today? Sure. Uh, so eight, eight trigrams prediction, you, so the eight trigrams are these symbols of, of three lines, um, which are either solid or broken into two bits. And they're used in a lot of different um, sort of divination practices and other things like feng shui and so on in, in China. Um, but each of them represents a certain kind of fundamental cosmic state. And these come from, ultimately, they come from the, the Yi Jing, which is a uh, an ancient cosmological text originally used for divination and then elaborated into a sort of wider cosmological theory. Um, and this provides the sort of the framework through which diviners will um, will tell fortunes. Um, so in practice, what they will do is um, they'll interpret the results of some kind of randomized process. What Master Tao would do is he would use a method involving coins. So if you're a divination client, you'd go see Master Tao. He'd give you three coins. Uh, he'd then ask you to throw the coins six times and you'd record the results okay and so when you throw the three coins six times depending on the heads and tails there's four different possible results um and these will by throwing them six times you get two trigrams on top of each other so you get a six line diagram and that represents the state of the cosmos from your particular perspective at that moment um and this is interpreted through a series of correlations of different lines. So each kind of hexagram and each line in each hexagram correlates to all sorts of different things like um, personal relationships, um, directions, times, um, colors, flavors, things like this. Yeah? And by looking at that in detail and the relationship between the different lines and so on, 
um, the diviner will come up with a prediction. Yeah. So that or, or, or will rather come up with a, a diagnosis of the current situation. Um, so to do with, for example, particular people involved, whether one whether a client's relationship with certain people is good or not, whether that's likely to change, what they could do to maximize the chances of things going well. Okay. Um, and sort of in, 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 a, in a wider kind of practical sense, what, what, what diviners are doing is helping people make decisions and solve problems. Yeah. Um, because clients will go and see diviners usually about significant day-to-day -day or sort of life um, occurrences or dilemmas and so on. So people will go and ask diviners about things like um, when they should schedule an important meeting or appointment or something like that, when they should move house, whether their child's um, choice of partner is suitable or not, um, whether a certain sort of family dispute will be resolved and whether that will be positive or negative and this sort of thing. Um, and basically by going into all of this detail, which a client doesn't necessarily need to understand, um, they are helping that client they think through the problem in a sort of more objective distanced way. Yeah? Um, so yeah, functionally speaking, what they're doing is, is providing quite an important source of advice and opportunity to talk through problems with somebody um, in a way that because it is associated with this very complex, uh, complex system, um, feels sort of scientific or objective um, and therefore some sort of lets clients feel that they've come to a kind of a better informed decision or have not had to take the responsibility of coming up with that decision themselves, yeah? um, which is often quite important in these circumstances. Um, and I think another thing, as you were talking, reminded me of um, my own research in Guizhou, where um, there's very little written, I mean, I've worked with the Dong people and there's no written text of their history, but the, but the families that have, have been able to, you know, pre, pre Maoist times who did send sons to study, um, there's of course, um, kind of value in, in the written text itself and, um, fortune telling through eight trigrams was very much valued because it has that written form, right? So just now as you were talking this kind of scientific or that kind of objective approach that these diviners have it also has to do with um the kind of the sources that they're that the knowledge the, the the expertise that they're coming with to you know to approach their clients um yeah um if we move Further into the details of your book, um, in chapter one, you look at the relationship between ethnographic evidence and conclusions about ontology and cognition. So cognition is, of course, one of the central themes of the book. And you study this through feng shui practice of um, fish tanks, um, how fish tanks encourage good fortune. I think it's such a fantastic um, topic to be looking at. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what are feng shui fish tanks and what does it tell us about ontology and the differences between lay and expert understanding? Sure, sure. Uh, okay, so um, fish tanks first. Um, this is something so I, I 
I have I have a fish tank myself, and this is what led me to sort of find out about this in the first place. So while I was in um, Hangzhou, I discovered that there was this very that actually there were several big um, what they call flower and bird markets, um, but a lot of them sell tropical fish as well, and goldfish and things like that. Um, and going around one of these, I noticed that actually you had several different kinds of um, sort of stall in these markets, some of which were just for, for sort of pets and so on, um, but some of which were these sort of dedicated feng shui specialist aquarium shops, um, which would sell these uh, very specific kinds of fish, um, often extremely expensive. And these are the sorts of um, fish that you will find if you go in. So, um, if uh, if you go out to say restaurant, a lot of restaurants in China or um, the offices of a lot of businesses and so on, you'll often see that they have a, a, a an ornamental fish tank as you go in. Um, and this is broadly speaking, this is for feng shui purposes because. Um, a lot, I think most people, if you ask them, will say, oh, well, it's, it's good luck because the word for fish is the same as the word for abundance. Yeah, so you, and, that, and then this means sort of by putting it by the entrance to your business, you're encouraging financial abundance and good luck to, to flow in. Yeah? Um, and that's how most people who use these would, would, would understand these. And they'll have certain kinds of fish. The ones you commonly see are called... Um, they're called red parrots, and they're these. Um, they're, like I said, they're about they're sort of medium-sized fish, like a sort of large goldfish, kind of quite round shape and bright red color, and both of which are sort of understood to be auspicious um, attributes. Both the fact that it's round and the fact that it's red. Um, but you'll also see, particularly in um, the offices of. Um, businesses and so on, um, a different kind of fish called the arowana or the dragonfish, which is and it, it's, yeah, it's a very big fish. It's about a meter long and it requires a very big tank to accommodate it. But these fish are considered the sort of the best kind of fish to keep for the purposes of encouraging good fortune. Um, and they will cost you know, tens of thousands of RMB to buy. Um, so they're, they're very expensive. So thousands of, of pounds, I guess. Um, they're very expensive to, to buy. They're quite difficult to keep, and they require a lot of um, maintenance to keep them healthy. Um, so in and of itself, the fact that you have that kind of investment is sort of a, a symbol of status and financial prosperity in the first place. Yeah. Um, but these are particularly prized, and the most prized ones are a sort of... Um, reddish or gold color. Um, now, if you talk to a feng shui specialist about this, or if you went to one of these specialist um, stores and asked them to set up a tank for you, um, there's a whole body of theory behind this, which goes far, far beyond what most people will be thinking about when they, when they install one of, these, um, one of these aquariums and these kind of fish. Um, and the idea there is that you can, that different sorts of fish kind of correspond to different cosmic forces. Yeah? Um, and 
ultimately, if you wanted to set up a really effective um, feng shui fish tank, you wouldn't just have one of these big fish. You'd have a whole range of different kinds of, of fish. And so I, I asked one of one of the um, diviners I worked with particularly closely, I, I asked him about this, and he is also a feng shui consultant. And he explained the logic of this um, and how he would set one of these up, which would be that you would um, choose different fish to correspond to the different cosmic forces outlined in the in the I Ching. Um, so in, in that sort of that classic divination text. Um, so you have one for the um, the Taiji, which is a kind of like the ultimate principle of the cosmos, and then some more which correspond to yin and yang, um, others which correspond to the different phases of, of qi, and so on, all of which are part of this kind of this cosmology. Um, and then ultimately, so you, you end up with a lot of different kind of fish, and you'll ultimately end up with some which correspond to the eight characters of the owner's birth, date, and time. Okay, So not only is this about reflecting broad cosmic principles, but it's also tailored to the, the fortune or the fate, if you like, of the individual person who owns, who owns the, the, the fish tank. Um, Right, so that's what a feng shui fish tank is. How it works, um, or how, 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 how it is explained to work, requires explaining a bit about how this cosmology works in the first place. Yeah, so um, if, if you speak to a feng shui specialist or an eight trigrams uh, diviner, they will explain to you that the, the cosmos is, is made of qi. Okay, so and everything in the cosmos is qi. So what is qi? Qi is a kind of both an energy and a substance, um, which is always changing. It's dynamic and it's in flux, but it changes according to fixed or constant principles. It goes through a cycle of five phases, um, earth, metal, water, um, wood, and fire. Um, and these exist in different relation to each other. So they, they are and these are relations which are either destructive or productive. So, for example, water chi is destructive to fire chi. Yeah? Um, and every everything in the cosmos then is constituted by chi and constituted by different proportions of chi in those different phases. Yeah? And so how you arrange different objects in relation to each other changes the local configuration of chi. So when you set up a feng shui fish tank, it is not simply that each fish corresponds to or is analogous to a particular kind of chi, it's that it is itself a manifestation of it. So what that means is by putting different fish in different combinations, you will increase the prominence of certain kinds of chi or decrease the prominence of other kinds of chi and so on. Yeah? And this is this is true in feng shui, not just for fish, but for all kinds of objects and so on. Yeah? Because everything is made of chi, when, when a person is born, their sort of their being is and, and their fate um, is determined by the, the combination of chi um, in the cosmos at that point. Yeah? What this means is that different people's 
good fortune will be enhanced or diminished by exposure to certain kinds of qi. So when you set up your feng shui fish tank, you can choose kinds of fish which will maximize the probability of accumulating good qi for a particular person based on the time that they were born. Does that make sense so far? So that's that. Yeah, okay. So that that's how all that works. Now, what what has this got to do with ontology and cognition? Um, this is a, a slightly different question, but this is about. Um, so in anthropology, you have an idea of you know there, there's a lot of literature now on ontology as a, a sense or as a, an idea of a sort of culturally specific set sort of set of ideas about the kinds of things that exist that then somehow sort of influences how people behave and how cultural practices work and so on. Yeah. Um, in the book, I talk about this in relation particularly to the work of Philippe Descalard, um, which I found very inspiring, but I also disagree with quite strongly. Yeah. Um, because he, he's, the, he's the person who sort of really set this out as a kind of where you can sort of explain... Um, the social institutions, the cosmological beliefs, uh, the rituals and so on of a particular society by recourse to very basic ontological principles. Yeah? That is ultimately how they think about the relationship between themselves and other beings. Yeah? Um, but the key point of the argument is that that set of ontological principles, that is the fundamental ideas of the kinds of things that exist and their relationship to um, the, uh, their relationship to, uh, to people um, then shapes the way that people perceive the world and interact with it. Now, often in anthropology, this is examined or arguments like this are made based on looking in depth at particular kinds of practices and then finding analogies between those practices and other sort of other institutions in society and so on. Yeah. So I thought I would think about this in relation to fish tanks, because that is exactly the kind of practice that a lot of anthropologists would sort of seize on to talk about ontology. Um, the same reason that people, for example, um, looking at um, Amazonia, people seize on something like shamanism, uh, because it's, it's a particular way where you know, there's a lot of ideas there about what are different kinds of beings and how do they relate to each other and so on. Um, or, um, divination in, in Cuba, for example, the, uh, Martin Holbrand's work, another, another example of this. Um, now, in the case of feng shui fish tanks, um, the issue is twofold. One is that, yes, if you talk to an expert, then they will give you a comprehensive ontological account. They will say, like, right, this is, this is how this all works, and it all works because of these gen this, this general unifying theory of the universe based on qi. Yeah. But this isn't how most people who use these fish tanks think about it. Now, what a lot of anthropological arguments about ontology will suggest, though, is that it doesn't need to be explicit, but somehow these practices are manifesting this deeper principle, yeah, which nonetheless is guiding behavior. So it makes sense to do something like set up a feng shui fish tank because 
people have got certain ideas about the relationship between different beings and so on. You know? um, and deep in their minds, that conception of, of that ontological conception is sort of encouraging them to behave in certain ways. This, I think, is totally wrong. Um, because, well, for, for two reasons, one of, the, one of which is ethnographic, which is that there, there's absolutely no amount of ethnographic evidence that could ever demonstrate that. Um, it required, by its very nature, arguments about ontology, in particular the, the sort of arguments that um, Martin Holbrad and Morton Peterson call um, deep ontology, that is using ontology as a sort of deep structural explanation for social organisation, social behaviour. Um, you wouldn't, you cannot find out through ethnographic means that such a thing exists. Yeah? The best you can do ethnographically is describe a wide range of practices and then infer some kind of unifying logic. So ethnographically in the first place, I'm skeptical about the basis of that inference. But the second thing is that when you actually sort of look at the, um, when you look at sort of studies in cognitive sciences, cognitive and developmental psychology and so on about sort of what is known about human thinking, um, the idea that there is some sort of deep ontological structuring device or structuring sort of process that um, sort of filters and renders coherent people's perceptions and understandings and behaviour um, doesn't hold water uh, because actually what what you're examining I mean what you're examining ethnographically and what you have access to ethnographically is actually a very small proportion of sort of what constitutes people's behavior and people's ideas yeah. and when you end up with these ontological theories you get these ontological theories when you ask somebody why have you set up this functional fish tank and what does it mean? Um, and so now if you do ask a diviner, they've got a systematic theory and that systematic theory is not simply um, prompted by you asking them about it. That is their theory of things and that is what's guiding their, their practice of analysing that. But two things can be said then. One is that that's not what is guiding people who maybe have one of these things set up but are not specialists in it. Um, who might be able to give you some kind of explanation, but it won't be something that actually in practice is in their minds motivating their behavior all the time. Yeah? The other thing that can be said about it is that even the experts, it's not as though everything they're doing all the time is done through the lens of that ontology of chi, for instance. Yeah? Um, you can see this in divination as well, for example. So you know the diviner will come up with their conclusions and interpretations based very much on this ontological system. But that won't be the only thing that leads them to their conclusions or what they say to their client. Yeah, there will be a lot of other things which are just based on, or which are based on things like emotional reaction and intuitive responses and other things that they know quite separately in separate domains from these ontological questions. Okay. Um, 
does that make does that make sense? I, I've, got, I've got a sense that I'm now rambling off in a lot of different directions, which is not. <laughs> I, I'm 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 following. I'm I'm following. Yeah, I, I do I do have to ask again before we move forward. Is your fish tank a feng shui fish tank? <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not. Um, for well, I can't afford the uh, the kind of enormous sort of the enormous amount of space and associated bills that something like that would require. Um, also, I think you know you have to be quite careful in setting up a tank like that that you do it properly and you get fish when they're the right sort of age and size because otherwise if you do if you don't if you don't do that right some of them will end up eating the rest of them and i would imagine that that's not good for one's fortune well, that's really interesting i mean just the whole maintenance and and um it's it's not it's not just buying that that will bring that fortune it is actually taking care of the fish like in any like any animal or human being or anything in landscape that we have to nurture to get what we want I mean, one of the notable things, again, in relation to whether, whether you know, how, how much people sort of buy into this is that if you've got a specialist or someone, they, they will be taking care of it. If you've got someone who's invested a lot of money in one of these expensive fish, they'll be taking care of it. If you've got someone who's bought some goldfish or something for the same purpose, you may, might well find that, oh, some of the fish look quite ill. They don't really take care of the tank very well. Um and I mean, I say this based on having encountered this kind of scenario where, you know, there's a strong element, and then anthropologically in relation to the question of ontology and whether people are doing things as motivated by some sort of ontological principles and so on. I do think in those situations, you know, and you'll get this even when you ask people, people will say, well, you know, of course I've got a fish tank here. That's what people have is, you know. Um, and I think there's always a, a sort of, there's a, a temptation which I think is not always warranted in sort of ethnographic analysis, that when people say something like that, oh, that can't be the real reason. There must be a deeper reason that explains why people do this thing, because there's no possible way that people would just do something, because that's what you do. Um, But actually, I think a lot of the time what people do is just because you know, it, well, it's because other people do it, so here's, so I'm doing it as well. It doesn't require, that doesn't mean there's no explanation. There are explanations, but they're not the kind of sort of total sort of search for coherence kinds of explanations that you find in something like the literature on ontology, where you're trying to find some sort of deep underlying principle for why people do all these strange things that makes them all make sense. So is this um, another example of anthropologists just comp- making things more complicated when, when maybe people just do things um, without much thought or they're imitating? or So, well, I mean, the fact that people might do things without so much thought or by through imitation or something like that doesn't mean that it's less complicated. Yeah, it's still very complicated. But in fact, the complexity of what is actually going on is far beyond the sort of the normal methods of anthropologists to grasp. Um, and there is something, because anthropology is so very wedded to ethnography, I think it, it tends towards kind of seeing ethnography as this inherently superior methodology that can get you 
everything you need to explain or understand a particular context. Um, I'm not convinced that's the case. And I think actually in these cases, you do need stuff which isn't necessarily about the kind of information that you can get through ethnography about sort of people's, what you most of what you get through ethnography is what people relate about their subjective experience, yeah? um, or what you can observe people do. But when you're just observing what people are doing, you're then having to infer what are their motivations and so on. And it's very easy to, you know, any anthropologist will tell you that, you know, what people say and what people do are often different things. But in practice, where anthropologists move on from ethnographic description to theorizing about what they have observed, they can forget that distinction, I think. Yeah? Um, and a lot of it, I just think a lot of it, so the reason I engage with cognition in relation to the ontology stuff is I think once you find out about what is known about the way that people think and different thought processes and sort of pay more or less attention and what is intuitive and what is reflective. And so um, it provides a much more credible explanation, I think, for the messiness that you see, um, but one that does require disciplinarily going beyond. No single discipline can do all of that. You, know? you need some, some crossover there. Thank you for that. Um, if we move on to chapter two, chapter two's title is Divining in a Homological Cosmos. Um, what does what does it what is the homological character of a trigrams cosmology? And what does its application tell us about the relationship between different cognitive processes? Sure. Um, right, so I use this term homological um, to mean Again, so this, this again is in, you know, I said earlier, I was inspired a lot by engaging with Descalar's work, even though I don't agree with everything that he says. I do like, though, his, so he has this categorization of different kinds of ontology. And I think that this is very useful for understanding what I call systematic ontologies in the book. So that is sort of actually kind of explicit theories of how the cosmos works starting from very fundamental principles about the kinds of things that exist. Yeah? Um, and he has four categories that he talks about, animism, analogism, totemism, and naturalism. And they're all based on the relationship between, the relationship that people perceive between human beings and other beings um, on two levels, one of which is um, physicality, so what kind of bodies um, beings have, and one of which is interiority. So that is what kind of subjectivity do beings have. So in, um, say, uh, naturalism, with which he associates sort of the, the kind of post-enlightenment um, Europe and America, um, you have a perception of um, continuous physicality. So all, all beings, plants, animals, etc., have the same kind of body. Um, but a discontinuous interiority. So humans have a different kind of interiority from animals, which have a different kind, well, which have an interiority, but not something like plants don't, for example. Yeah? Um, and you can contrast that with, say, animism, where all beings are perceived as having the same kind of interiority, but instantiating that in ontologically distinct 
bodies. Yeah. So he talks about um, analogism, which is where each being is understood to have a different physicality and a different interiority. And he talks about that in relation to um, China. Now, I use homolo homology here basically to, as a sort of counterpoint to that, because I don't think that the kind of the kind of Chinese cosmology he's talking about, which is the sort of cosmology of qi and the five phases, um, and so on, ultimately, when you know talking to diviners and also looking at sort of historical cosmological texts going right back to sort of the before the first Chinese empires in the, in the last few centuries BC. And so you don't see a conception of um, fundamental differences between beings. You see a conception of fundamental continuity. And it's a conception of fundamental continuity on the level of physicality, so on the, on, in terms of bodies, and also on the level of interiority, so in terms of subjectivity and psychology and so on. Um, so what does this mean in practice? How, how is this understood in practice? Well, so as, as, as I mentioned, so everything in this, this conception in the cosmos is composed of qi. That's not only physical objects. Psychological processes, subjective, you know, emotions and so on are all understood as qi. That is the transformation of qi. When you have a particular subjective feeling or emotion, that is different forms of qi interacting with each other. Yeah. So, in to give an so give an example, um, one of the diviners um, I um, talk about in the in the book, Ma uh, Chenglong, he would say uh, he and his his students in, uh, in his particular sort of school of divination would say things like, um, you know, a, a big part of feng shui is how different kinds of objects and colors and images around you affect your mood or not. Yeah? And so you can use the principles of feng shui to encourage positive emotions and diminish negative ones. And that only makes sense because all of these are causally the same kind of thing. They're all about different forms of qi interacting with each other. Okay, So you have a, a conception that everything on an ontological level is the same kind of thing. It's, the, it's all qi. And therefore, it follows that you can use physical objects to manipulate psychological phenomena and vice versa. Yeah. Um, so in practice, what does this mean if you go to have your fortune told? Well, First thing, so say, say you're going to Master Town and he's asked you to throw the coins. You throw the coins. Why do the coins land the way that they land? They land because the configuration of chi at that particular point in space, space and time means that they will necessarily land this way. Yeah? So in that sense, once you've got your hexagram, your six-line diagram from the throw of all the coins, what you've got is not a symbolic representation of the cosmos, but a direct index of cosmic conditions at that moment. Yeah? That is, the particular result from the divination is causally determined by the flow of chi around it at the particular time, or the chi field they were, they were talking about. Um, so 
you've derived this from from the cosmos, from the world, you can then use it to identify sort of trends and propensities in the world at that time from the perspective of the client. Okay? So that's how this works as a sort of an explanation for how divination is possible in the first place. Yeah? You interpret the hexagram according to principles which are themselves held to be derived from observing natural patterns in the world. Um, and that goes back to the text of the I Ching itself that talks about um, how the, the sages observed patterns on animals and um, patterns in nature and used these to derive the, the trigrams and hexagrams in the first place. Um, now, what does this tell, tell you about the relationship between different cognitive processes? Um, I think it, 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 there's, there's two sort of interesting things to say there. First, you know, when the diviner is interpreting a hexagram, they are doing so according to a, a, a mental representation of this systematic idea of what the cosmos is like. Yeah? So this is a context in which ontology does provide a particular sort of explanation for how they, how they are interpreting things. Yeah? Um, at the same time, though, clients um, don't often don't really have much knowledge of the details of you know the theoretical level of how divination is supposed to work and so on. Um, sometimes they do. You'll have some clients who are repeat clients and they've learned a lot about it and so on. Um, and they'll interpret things in a slightly different way according to that. But a lot of clients won't. Nonetheless, they find divination useful and convincing. Okay? So what this sort of highlights actually is, is the kind of the whole range of sort of cognitive processes that are that are going on here. So how, how much does the homological sort of ontology relate to this? For clients, I think the primary reason that that has some significance here is that it makes the practice persuasive. And it makes the practice persuasive on um, on a reflective level. That is when subject to sort of conscious thought about why the system works and so on. Um, and it does this for a couple of reasons. One is that it provides, you know, if the client wants an explanation for why this works, the diviner can provide one and provide one which, because of its technical detail and its complexity, sort of inherently sounds fairly sort of reasonably convincing yeah? but also i think particularly importantly in the context of contemporary china is that the cosmological system and the the, the basic ontology of the cosmology of qi lends itself to drawing direct comparisons with um, scientific conceptions of the cosmos because you have an idea that um the cosmos has a single origin. It is all made up of a single kind of thing, which is a sort of matter which transforms over time. It's governed by constant principles, so you can sort of forecast things according to their propensities and so on. And because of how sort of socially and culturally salient science uh, sort of broadly understood is as a knowledge system in China, a divination system which can compare itself readily with science is more likely to be convincing. 
I think. And it's definitely more likely to be convincing than one which relies on um, the intervention of gods or spirits and things like that, which are notably absent from a triwrat's prediction, at least as practiced in in cities and outside the context of sort of rural popular religion where things are a little bit different. But you've also got quite an interestingly different kind of social context there in terms of what might be sort of culturally hegemonic in terms of ideas of knowledge and, and so on. Um, Thanks so much for that, William. Let's move closer to um, the distinctions between principle, which you talk about in chapter three, which is titled Figurative Thought for Coherent Cosmology. Um, And this chapter concentrates on the diviner's epistemological accounts of divination. Here, the broader ontological claims of eight trigones cosmology are brought together with the practice of divination itself. Um, but what are some of the distinctions between principle amongst the practitioners that you spent time with and learned from during your field work? Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, in, the, in this chapter in the book, I talk particularly about, about two, two diviners who I've, I've mentioned already, Master Tao and Ma Chang Long. And they, uh, they both are, broadly speaking, using what are at root very similar ideas um, and similar principles of, of divination. That is, they, they would both subscribe to the cosmos as being constituted of, of chi, transformation, transforming through the five phases. They would both also subscribe sort of epistemologically to the idea that because everything in the cosmos is continuous by virtue of being composed of chi, um, you can derive an index of cosmic conditions through some sort of divination process and then use that to extrapolate a client's circumstances. However, they have some differences in sort of how they approach this. Um, so, and they, these are, these are in some ways sort of differences of, of emphasis, but also differences in the particular kinds of, of, cognitive process, if you like, that they pay particular attention to. So um, Master Tao, um, he was very sort of, very kind of materialist in his approach. Um, Very sort of, very, very keen on comparing um, divination with science and arguing that it was not only that it was like science, but was itself a scientific practice. So for him, um, principles are sort of the the principles are kind of are in in themselves scientific, but he's he had he distinguished between theory and practice, if you like. So he he would talk about theory in practice and talk about the the content of the I Ching would be the so is the ideal type theory. And he would do this by analogy, analogy with Marxism. And so you would say the thought of Marx is kind of, that's the theory, but it doesn't apply directly to reality. How do you apply it directly to reality? You have to adapt it to the particular circumstances. So in practice, um, he would say you get socialism with Chinese characteristics, because it is tailored to the local circumstances in China. And the same is true for 
the I Ching. That is, when you try to apply this in practice, reality is messier, but importantly, in his conception, it, it, it's messier because human beings' perceptions of it, there's a gap between humans' ability to theorize about the world and then actually operate within it. Um, and he would sort of talk about this in terms of questions of accuracy. Ultimately, it is the job of the diviner um, ethically to pursue accuracy. Um, but there are various things which sort of militate against that. Some of those are ethical concerns. Yeah, there are certain there are certain situations where you want to, you know, say a client has asked about something particularly sensitive or something like maybe that involves prediction of something like serious illness or um, death or something like that. One then has to be sort of careful about how much and how the information is presented to them. Yeah, so there's an ethical consideration, but more importantly than than that overall is that people are fallible and in practice no diviner is going to be able to give an interpretation which incorporates every single possible cosmological inference that one could get from a divinatory result um, into their diagnosis and prediction okay so he would say you should, always, you should always mistrust a diviner who claims to be 100% accurate yeah? um, because they won't be 100% accurate. Um, he would say that he was 70% accurate. Yeah? Um, and clients of his would give a similar estimate or if they were feeling less charitable, they might say 60%. Um, but the point being that it's not actually possible for the diviner as a human being to make full use of the theoretical principles of, um, of a trigrams cosmology. Yeah. Um, Ma Long took a, a slightly different view. Um, his approach to divination is much more intuitive in the sense that it involved a much greater space for sort of spontaneous association. Um, so once you've derived your hexagram, um, for Master Tao, once you've derived the hexagram, you're then supposed to go through it systematically, line by line, note down all the possible correlations or as many relevant possible correlations as possible for each line, and then work out which are going to be the most salient for answering the client's question. For Ma Jiang Long, you, you don't do this. You don't go through it line by line. You end up with your hexagram, and then you think about what images the hexagram as a whole suggests. Uh, now, this is partly based on the, the text of the I Ching itself. Part of the I Ching is known as the commentary on images, which gives various sort of Im imagery and associations for each, each hexagram. Um, and so he would use that quite a lot. But the point is that this isn't necessarily derived through a kind of deliberative process in the way that Master Tao would sort of systematically go through it. This would be more in terms of, okay, what are the spontaneous things that would come into his mind in relation to that hexagram? And he would explain this, again, in terms of this continuity, like the reason that that has come into his mind is because the chi configuration of the hexagram provokes it in his mind. So therefore there is a causal 
relationship there. But he would he would distinguish between um, he, he placed a big emphasis on um, epistemology, um, and he, he would he would differentiate between epistemology and methodology. Um, but his point was that every aspect of the methodology should be consistent with the explicit epistemological theory of divination. So what I, what I just said there about deriving the image and how you get, you also interpret the image through what the actual hexagram sort of um, spontaneously presents to you in your mind and so on. That, he would argue, is the correct methodology following on from the, from the epistemological principle, which is that you get the hexagram um, inevitably from the general circumstances um, of the world at the time that that hexagram is derived, yeah? and that therefore you can interpret the world from that because of the causal connection the hexagram has to the world, yeah, if that makes sense. Um, he would say, though, that it's not, he, he, he would say it's not scientific. Um, he would say that it's beyond science. Um, so for, for Ma Jianlong, um, eight trigrams, uh, divination falls under the label of, um, xuan xue, which means kind of like dark studies, um, which is a, a label that has historically been given to various, various sort of, um, mantic practices and things like this, which are sort of associated, so sort of associated with, with Taoism and Taoist philosophy. Um, but he's got a particular interpretation of that. Um, and he would say that whilst science is a, a useful way of understanding certain aspects of the world, it's incomplete. Um, and you need something like Xuan Shui to kind of bridge, bridge the gap between the more sort of systematic and rationalized approach and the kind of the intuitive complexities of, of reality. Yeah. Um, so he would, he would argue that it's a sort of a bridge between science and religion that also goes beyond both of them. That's really interesting how these two diviners have such different principles um, and approaches to their practice. It would be really interesting to hear more about kind of, you know, the background of where they're coming from and all of this that of course the social condition would would, would um, trigger and and would, would teach them certain certain ways of understanding their practices but let's not stray away from the book too much let's move on to chapter four um, in chapter four you look at the historical development of homologism to consider the re- reoccurring debates in Chinese thoughts and cosmology what are some of these debates you've been looking at? Sure. So um, in, in particular, there, so in looking at this, so chapter four essentially gives a kind of a brief history of the development of, um, of eight trigrams divination and the, the development of the I Ching and the, um, the cosmology surrounding it. Uh, in, the, in the sort of the Chinese studies or Sinology literature, this, is, this tends to be called correlative cosmology. But... Broadly speaking, that is what what we've been talking about so far in terms of qi and five phases, yin and yang, and so on. Um, the idea that you can understand 
how the cosmos works by identifying the cons cosmic principles that correlate with different kinds of, of beings and processes and so on. Um, so in, in terms of debates about Chinese thought and Chinese cosmology, the, the key question here is, the, is that of the degree to which um, correlative cosmology represents a fundamentally different kind of, of thought from what you would find in, typically, typically in this case, it is contrasted with the kind of thought that you would get in, in ancient Greece um, and ideas about causation and so on. And what you will find in um, a lot of the sort of discussions of correlative cosmology in the literature is um, a juxtaposition of associative or correlative thinking and causal or analytical thinking. Okay. Um, so in an extreme, in a sort of extreme kind of caricatured version, you would have sort of ancient Greek and then subsequently kind of Western sort of philosophical thought focusing very much on questions of causation, usually through a sort of billiard ball, single cause, single effect kind of process based on an ontology, um, which fundamentally is about essences. That is that different things have their own essence and that is how they are primarily, primarily to be defined and understood. And then again, using the same sort of extreme caricature in the Chinese case, you would say, you would have an idea that this isn't about causation, it's about association. That is, it's a bit similar to um, Levi Strauss's kind of science of the concrete. That is, you pick out things that go together, and they, they you know they're good to think with because they go together. It's not necessarily about causation, um, and also that things are then of you know objects, beings, phenomena, and so on are then understood primarily in terms of their relations with each other, not in terms of essences. Um, so I, in looking at that, what what I'm trying to argue is that in fact when you look at when you look at correlative cosmology you look at early correlative cosmological texts um, this kind of dichotomy is illusory that is you you there is absolutely in sort of in early chinese correlative cosmological thought there is absolutely an understanding of phenomena as having essences, as, of beings of having essences, but also that because of that or in relation to that, they, they work differently in relation to other kinds of beings and so on. Yeah? And also, most, most, most particularly that correlative cosmology is absolutely about causal understandings. Yeah? So the, the, key, the key thing that I'm trying to sort of make clear in that chapter is that there there is causation this is a kind of it's a kind of explanation for the world rather than simply a description of the world when people were talking about it in terms of five phases yin and yang and so on. um the upshot being that i think that it's i, I think it's important to not overstate the degree of difference on a fundamental level between how people thought in ancient China and how people thought in 
you know, in, in ancient Greece or how people think today in China versus the West and so on. Yeah? Um, these are differences of emphasis on a philosophical level rather than fundamental differences in styles of thinking. Yeah? Um, so in terms of sort of the, the evolution of um, correlative cosmology, I mean, this, this mirrors one, you know, one, one of the reasons that this is important, again, in relation to those questions about ontology and anthropology is that it's, it's about similar questions of cultural difference. Yeah. Um, so in, in some of the ontology literature, you will get um, the idea that less so, less so in the work of someone like Philippe Descolar, but more in terms of the literature on what's become called like the ontological term. Um, there's a very real emphasis on a huge emphasis on, you know, what they call sort of alterity. That is incommensurate differences between how people think and how people understand the world and not even that, but the world itself that people inhabit based on um, their, their culture. And though it's not put in quite the same way in uh, some of the sinological literature, um, it's, getting at the same kind of, of thing. So at sort of extreme ends of the spectrum in um, Chinese studies, you might have someone at, at, at one end, you might have someone like um, Edward Slingerland who talks very much about sort of universal cognitive processes um, and how you can understand both Chinese and Western thought in those terms. On the other end, you have someone like Francois Julien who um, will make a lot of arguments based on sort of the the content of ancient Chinese language and things like this, and say that you know people's conception of time in ancient China was fundamentally different from people's conception of time in in Europe or something like this. Um, the issue is that when we're looking at these early texts, we're looking really at works of what I've been calling sort of systematic ontological thinking. Yeah, that is, in, in a lot of these cases, these are texts that people, written by people who had thought out a systematic account of how the world works and how reality works. Um, and there is a huge danger if you try to generalize from that to how everybody in a society thinks or generalize from that to sort of general trends in how people in ancient China thought, for example. Um, and what you find in some of the in, in, in the early early Chinese texts is that you'll have some which do indeed present the beginnings of an idea of a homological conception of the cosmos. You'll have others though where again it's a bit like the question of the feng shui fish tanks. You can't actually conclude from what is there really what the person reading the reading it or who wrote it actually thought about the fundamental nature of, of the universe. So you have things like the, uh, um, the day book, which, which is a, an excavated text from um, a, a Qin era tomb, which is essentially a kind of like sort of almanac or, or manual. And that includes in it ideas of associating particular um, phenomena and beings and so on with different phases. It doesn't describe them particularly in terms of qi. There's no evidence given in that of 
any sort of general incorporation of these into what is now understood as a sort of chi-based cosmology. Um, what there is there, though, is an identification of, for example, what kind of practices you should do to stop, you know, a certain kind of, so you've got some, you know, a certain kind of problem, it's caused by a certain kind of demon or a certain kind of force, here's what you do about, about it. You know? Now, I think what is important to remember is that, that what that represents is some way that people were thinking about a certain phenomenon. It doesn't necessarily represent a holistic or coherent worldview. And we should be careful in how we sort of generalize from it in the same way that we should be careful ethnographically from how we generalize from observable phenomena. Thank you so much for that. Um, let's move on to chapter five, where you draw together the ethnographic and historical material presented so far to advance a comparative approach to understand ontology and cosmology. One which accounts adequately the role of universal cognitive mechanisms while reta retaining due sensitivity to ethnographic and historical specificity. Um, and in this chapter, you're looking at this notion of scale, which is also one of the key themes in your book. Um, can you tell our listeners more about how scale is understood in Yijing cosmology? Sure. Um, right. So, yeah. Um, so scale is a, is, a, is a theme all the way through in, in, in various senses. Um, what I'm talking about here is sort of the way that um, diviners and specialists in, in Yijing cosmology or eight trigrams cosmology think about sort of different levels of causation and different levels of complexity of, of phenomena in, in the world. Yeah? So on, on your most basic level or the, way, or the most basic scale, you have something like qi, which is the fundamental sort of substance. Um, you can then, this is best understood, I think, in terms of sort of zooming in or zooming out to particular particular scales or particular levels. So if you zoom out from chi as the fundamental uh, basis of reality, you then, you would zoom out and you would start to see yin chi versus yang chi, that is yielding versus active chi. You zoom out further and you start to see the five phases of chi and so on. And as you zoom out further, you start to see different configurations of these constituting different kinds of phenomena. Yeah? So we talked about the, the fish tanks earlier. Um, in the fish tank, in the feng shui fish tank, you've got these different fish which sort of amplify the presence of different kinds of chi. Yeah? Um, but it's not only the fish that do this. Yeah? If you zoom in on a particular fish, you know, Different, different parts of the fish, different parts of the fish's anatomy and sort of biological makeup and so on will correspond to different forms of chi or different kinds of chi will be predominant or not. And you zoom out the, the fish tank itself with the fish inside it, you've got various different kinds of chi which become more or less relevant as you're zooming out. So on the level of the fish tank as a whole, you know, water chi might be the most the most relevant but as you zoom in on a particular fish that particular fish within that context is you know manifesting fire chi and so on and you can you can keep doing this and zoom out zoom in or zoom out when you zoom out all the way to the cosmos as a whole there's a balance of all of it yeah but it's fluctuating now the really important thing to understand here is that um and this goes back to that debate about 
Chinese thought being and whether it's about relations or not, um, or how far it's about relations rather than essences. So when you've got your fish in your, so you've got your water fish tank, and then you've got your fish inside that represents fire, there's another fish inside that represents, well, not that represents, that manifests wood chi. Now, it's not the case simply that the fish that manifests fire chi manifests fire chi because it's positioned in relation to this other fish, and when they're positioned in that relation, they manifest that kind of chi. It is rather that on the scale of fish, these are the relevant bits of chi that constitute these beings. Yeah? But actually, on other scales and on other levels, it still has all the other kinds of chi inside it as well, um, if that makes sense. So it has got both, so it is both relation, relational and about essence in the sense of what it, what it, what it, what makes up the uh, the being um, so to, to put another way um, one of the, the ways that sort of that Mahjanong, um explained this is that um, you know if you think about species a particular species of, of animals such as a human is that species because of the particular composition of different of different kinds of chi within it, yeah? And you get you'll get variation between individual people because you have slight variation then in the particular kinds of chi making each of them up, yeah. But you would have a very different configuration of different kinds of chi that would make up a different kind of animal, yeah. Um, but the point is that when you zoom in, so say you're you know. Say so you're assembling your feng shui fish tank, you pick your fish in relation to each other because of how their chi, how their chi on the level of fish relates to each other. That all still exists, though, when the fish are not so relevant, but what is relevant is how you position your fish tank in relation to your other furniture of the chi that that manifests. Yeah? But the point is, and this is, this is the, really, the really important point, is that all of the other chi that's relevant in the other relationships is still there when you've zoomed out or zoomed in to another level. Okay, so that is how scale is understood in the cosmology, and in divination you will see this as well. You will, so you know, if you if you get your six lines, you're interpreting your different lines. In each line on one level will indicate the predominance of a certain kind of chi. That kind of chi will manifest differently depending on how you then interpret, uh, well, depending on what kind of relationship you then examine in relation to that line. Yeah? Um, and you'll have sort of different kinds of relationships which are grouped together because they are caused by similar configurations of chi. So, for example, um, you'll have one kind of relationship in six lines prediction, um, which is called the category is called brothers. Um, it is used to describe relationships between siblings, but also relationships between friends and relationships between colleagues. But the point being that all of those relationships are based similarly on kind of equal status. And that in itself, therefore, means that each of those is manifesting a particular kind of configuration of chi, which on the level of social relationships manifests as relationships of equal status, as opposed to 
hierarchical relationships of certain kind or gendered relationships of certain kind. So other categories will include things like um, parents or children. And these would also be used to represent sort of certain other kinds of hierarchical relations. So a line that represents that corresponds to or indexes. Children also indexes things like pets yeah, or anything else where the client has a caring or nurturing relationship to it. Um, it's also, I mean, those categories are also very, you know, they're, they're very linked to sort of Confucian family ideas. So you have things like you'll have um, husbands and ghosts is, uh, no, no, not husbands and ghosts, um, officials and ghosts, um, husbands and something, maybe it's just husbands, but you'll then have um, wives and wealth. So you can see that there's a very definite sort of gendered kind of thing there. But the idea being that in this in this cosmology, those particular forms of qi will cause analogous relationships or homologous rather relationships to manifest depending on the particular individuals involved. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of how scale works there. Now, I think that this is a useful way to think about scale, even if it is a little complicated and difficult to explain when you can't lay it out over several pages. Um, but it's, it's a useful way of thinking about scale because now move, moving away from divination to sort of how we think about things like cultural difference in anthropology and comparison in anthropology. Um, what, well, one of, the, one of the great strengths then of thinking about scale in this way in, in a Troy Grant's cosmology is that you're then able to understand or describe the specificities of very particular sort of interpersonal relationships and things like that and subjective experiences in terms of a general framework which also describes kind of general universal principles about how the cosmos works. Yeah. Um, and you do this because when you're zooming in on a particular scale, you're not you're you're looking at the aspects of that scale which are relevant to what you're trying to find out, but you're not forgetting that all of the other scales still exist at the same time. Yeah. Now, if we do something like cross-cultural comparison. I mean, the fun, one, of the, one of the fundamental sort of questions in anthropology is about what is universal and what is relative. Yeah? And that's, in many ways, the fundamental sort of problem of comparison. And how do you compare across cultural contexts where so many things are relative to that specific context, whilst also maintaining things like an idea about you know, psychic unity of humankind and things like this? And it seems to me that particularly looking at things like cognition and so on, I mean, cognitive approaches are not always the most welcome approaches in social anthropology, let's say. Yeah? Uh, and sometimes there can be sort of you know hostility or mistrust of a cognitive approach because a cognitive approach is seen as focusing more on universals than on what is relative, perhaps. This is even more the case, though, if you, rather than looking at a cognitive approach, you look at something like an evolutionary approach. Yeah? Um, and if you look at sort of debates or arguments between, let's say, social anthropologists and biological anthropologists about how to explain certain kinds of social phenomena and so on, 
um, it can often seem like there's no common common ground there. And I, I think a lot of the problem here is that that's because people end up thinking that one level of reality or one, one scale is more real than another. Yeah? So if you say you approach, say you approach a question of social behavior from the perspective of something like evolutionary psychology, yeah? um, you might be tempted to then think that the real explanation is then about you know evolved propensities or evolved mechanisms. Whereas if you're approaching it from um, a perspective focusing much more on things like cultural meaning and so on, you might think that, you know, well, the real explanation here is the specificity of context and um, subjectivity and so on in, in, in this particular circumstance. Um, but it seems to me that none of, neither of those things is more or less real than the others. Yeah. So what I think, you know, as anthropologists or as comparative social scientists and so on, we can learn from aging cosmology is that we can talk about general principles and universals um, and also talk about you know cultural particularities and specificity of context and so on um, without compromising our ability to understand the reality of either of those things you know yeah so what 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 it is is also that one or the other the other the way that um, Egypt cosmology works in understanding scale like, like this is that it is dynamic. Uh, that is that there are things are complex. They are very complex, and the complexity unfolds across scales. But it unfolds in terms of how it does. Inf- it does unfold in terms of how things interact with each other. Yeah, that is rather than being sort of dichotomously about essences or relations, as though one or the other was the more important thing. Um, it is about propensities and the conditions under which those propensities manifest as particular kinds of phenomena. And I think that's the way that we should approach questions like how to understand universal cognitive mechanisms whilst also understanding the specificity of ethnographic circumstances and so on. Rather than seeing those things as opposed to each other, as you know, a universal versus a relative perspective or as a reductive versus a holistic perspective, what we should be thinking is, well, how, how do these different scales of phenomena which make up human behavior interact to produce what we then see in a given context? Okay, and on that, on that topic of comparison, let's move on to your conclusion, um, where you emphasize that by considering culture and cognition in terms of large-scale, long-term historical comparison, anthropologists can find answers to larger ambitious questions that should lie at the scope of anthropological inquiry. This is something that you were drawing on just now. Um, But can you tell our listeners a bit more about this and provide examples of what kind of large-scale understanding um, can a cognitively grounded approach to eight uh, trigram cosmology, um, what what kind of, what does it allow for? Sure. Um, Yeah, so so I think, yeah, the the fundamental sort of problem of, so comparison is something that in anthropology is, you know, endlessly debated. How can you you compare? I, I do think that, uh, you know, a lot of that comes from not getting anthropology's own ontology right, if you see what I mean. Um, because even though within anthropology we, you know, we 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 know and acknowledge things like you know culture is culture isn't 
cultures as such don't exist as such. Yeah, it is more it is more complicated than that. We don't have bounded cultures. We don't have have bounded societies and so on. Things are dynamic and fluid. So, uh, in practice, it is quite difficult to get out of that way of thinking when you are thinking comparatively. And I think one of the reasons that we end up with sort of problems about how to compare things is a question of, well, how do we make things commensurable when they come from different cultural contexts and there's a sort of implicit assumption there that because they come from different cultural contexts, the whole logic of them must be different. What I think that we can do, though, in terms of thinking about those ideas of scale is think, well, rather than think of the cultures as they, as it were, as the starting point for comparison, think of them as they are the sort of end or current result of an ongoing process of change and transformation, which operates causally along ver- across various different levels. And those levels include the level of, um, you know, systematic ontological thinking. They include the level of sort of lower levels of cultural transmission and imitation and so on. They include questions of economic circumstances, of ecology, of um, general processes by which human beings learn um, as they develop and so on. So the way we should approach comparison, I think, is to say, okay, well, how do all of these different levels, how can we explain these two different outcomes that we see in these two different contexts as particular points in a dynamic trajectory of all of these different scales of phenomena interacting with each other. Yeah. Um, And then sort of how can we draw out general principles from that, but also when we draw out those general principles, we we acknowledge that we we are acknowledging that those are describing propensities and these propensities, how these propensities manifest depends on all of those other different kinds of circumstances. Okay. So if we can do that, then we can actually, I think, ask more interesting questions than is comparison possible? It seems to me if you do that, and if we we acknowledge these things, then comparison is possible. It is still very difficult. It is still absolutely very difficult because it's about complexity and how complexity unfolds through all of these intertwined relationships. Um, but it's at least a starting point, okay? So um, we can then ask this, so say we are looking at something like eight trigrams cosmology, okay? One question that I've been interested in in relation to this is why would this kind of cosmology come about in the first place? Um, so in, in chapter um, three, chapter four, no, in chapter four, um, about the his, his, historical um, homology. Um, you know, I talk about the history of these cosmological ideas and how they're particularly tied up with um, the, at first, the decline of the hegemony of the Zhou state and then the warring states period and then the rising... Um, hegemony and, and, and the, of Qin and Qin's wars of conquest 
which culminate in the first unified empire and how that is then consolidated and legitimized by the Han. Um, and the story of correlative cosmology and how it's developed is very tightly bound up to that. Um, in the, so with, with the ascent of the Qin state, um, you have a theory, so you've already had ideas of theories of um, dynastic change based on the mandate of heaven and so on, but you start to get that being combined with these cosmological ideas you know, so that you have these different phases and Qin will rise as a dynasty because it is the next phase and is associated with or a manifestation of the next phase in the sequence. And in order to encourage it, um, the people should wear certain colours of clothing and engage in certain kinds of practices and so on, because all of these are similar manifestations of that same cosmic state. And then by the hand, you've got a, a much more well-established idea of explaining all this in terms of qi. Yeah. So what, what does this suggest in terms of these kinds of long-term historical comparisons? It suggests that there is some kind of relationship between the content of cosmology and questions of political legitimacy and state organization. Um, Because importantly, this this cosmology that is now used in a triumph cosmology is is also the cosmology that the Qin and Han empires use as the sort of the philosophical underpinning of their legitimacy. Um, So what if we want to understand the nature of that relationship? If we take as our starting point the idea that you've got, okay, you've got early Chinese culture, um, you might come up with an explanation, but it's probably going to be circular. It's going to be a, it's going to be a kind of explanation. If, if you well, what that is, if you refuse comparison, or say that you can't compare because of the specificities of the situation, you will produce an explanation that effectively amounts to these kind of ideas existed. Um, these were, you know, locally prevalent ideas. So, of course, people drew on the locally prevalent ideas, and that was an important part of political legitimacy. So, effectively, what you what you do is you say Chinese culture was Chinese because it was Chinese, yeah? uh, which doesn't explain things. It might describe you now. You might be able to use that kind of approach to describe things effectively, but you're not really explaining why this kind of cosmology would come about, or whether this cosmology would play a causal role. Um, to understand whether it plays a causal role in the development of the particular con- political configuration or vice versa, you need comparison in the first place. That is, you need another sort of case where you can look at the relationship between cosmology and political order and state formation and see that, because then you can start to draw out what are the similarities and differences, what are the reasons behind them. Um, so if we think about this in terms of scale, I think that helps facilitate this quite a lot because then we can start to separate out all of the different variables that make up the sort of complex phenomenon of a cosmologically legitimated um, political order. So the comparative case that I'm quite interested in is the, um, the Roman Republic and Empire because it emerges at a similar kind of time to the Qin state there are lots of things about the circumstances which present interesting parallels. In both cases, you have had a previous um, 
a sort of a previous sort of cultural center where a lot of philosophical and cosmological ideas have developed. Um, so you think about the various states within the Zhou sphere of influence in China or the or you know Greece and so on in, in, in Europe. These get adopted in a particular form by a state which is on the cultural periphery, if you like, but which then is able to use these and adapt these and then alongside these conquer what was previously that sort of cultural center from the periphery and become the cultural center itself in, in terms of the Qin state and the Roman state. Um, so when you think about this in terms of lots of different scales and how they interact, you can start to say, okay, well, what were the parallels in each case? You know, can we look at things like the nature of cultural transmission of ideas in both cases? Um, the ecology and environmental circumstances and economic circumstances in both cases, um, the nature of political organization, forms of hierarchy involved, um, relationship between men and women, relationship between the state and the people or the military and things like this. And by thinking of these all in terms of them being their own scale, we can then start to zoom in to particular kinds of causal relations and interactions and then zoom out to get a wider picture. And we can start to very slowly um, sort of create a kind of common framework by which we can look at these two societies, which is sensitive to how these things interact on different scales. Yeah? Um, so it doesn't mean you just reduce everything to economic circumstances or to geography or something like that. You're still thinking, well, what are the ideas involved? What are the practices people are engaging in? How are they related to each other? And how do they correlate with everything else? And that way, I think you can start to move towards drawing sort of broader conclusions about trends in sort of how human societies work and operate, um, but in a way which is much more nuanced and much more sensitive to local specificities. That was a fantastic answer to that. Thank you, William. Um, I've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we end today's episode, um, I wanted to ask you what you've been working on since you published, um, since you published your book. Um, what kind of projects have you been undergoing? What have you been thinking about? Have you how have you been spending the last couple of months? And. Mm. Um... So since um, so the book came out last um, November, I've worked on a, well, there's been a few projects which are sort of related to it, which have kind of got to publication um, sort of since then. One, of, one was, uh, well, two of these have been about um, understanding divination and ontology comparatively. Yeah? So one, one of these was a special issue um, of, social analysis um, that I, I guest edited, which came out in September. And in that, we were looking at um, the relationship between ontology and different divination practices in, um, so in China, um, in, in sort of Han Chinese society, um, but also um, in ancient Greece, um, among the, the Norsu of southwest China as well, um, and then with a, with a few sort of general comparative commentaries. Um, a, a lot of that was 
sort of trying to answer the question of why do some divination systems end up with some kind of systematic ontology attached to them in the first place when a lot of divination systems exist which don't have any kind of ontological explanation associated with them. Um, and, and then how does this differ in, in, in different times and places? Um, so that's, that's one thing. Another thing was a, an article that came out in June in Current Anthropology, which was about um, different... Um, the, the, the role of intuition and reflection as two different kinds of cognitive process in different divination systems, and in particular its role in interpretation. Um, and in that particularly, I compared um, eight trigrams divination, six lines prediction specifically, with um, Cuban uh, ether divination. Um, as discussed by uh, by Martin Holbrook, and both so both of these forms of div- divination accord a very different role to intuition. So, in a divination system like Efa, there's a lot of room for spontaneous association and intuitive association on the part of the diviner um, in order to draw conclusions. So, it's quite expansive and sort of generative of a lot of different possible meanings and interpretations. That's very different from eight trigrams um, prediction, which is um, what I call reductive, in that because there are so many fixed correlations uh, and these fixed principles of how you should interpret it, ultimately there's only one highly specific answer. So it produces answers, like I said at the, at the beginning when I was talking about getting my own fortune told. It produces answers like you will have a, you know, you'll have a communication with this particular person at this specific time is that level of specificity as opposed to a much more expansive kind of uh, meaning generation kind of exercise. Um, another thing I've been working on is a, a paper with um, Ivan Deschino, who's also at, um, uh, at LSE, and that's about um, models of the mind in in anthropological thinking and in how anthropologists theorize from ethnography, which um, expands on some of the things I mentioned earlier about uh, in relation to ontology and so on. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been doing in the meantime. So you've been very busy. Uh, well, a lot of the, I, I don't know, a lot, a lot of it is sort of stuff that's been in the pipeline for a while and has kind of all ended up finishing in the same kind of the same kind of time, yeah. Um, well, regardless, I really look forward to reading um, your, your new publications and um, I'm, not, I'm sure the audience um, also very much look forward to seeing as your work unfolds. Um, but for now, I wanted to thank you for putting your time aside and joining us today to talk about um, cosmic coherence in so much detail. It was really fascinating to, to read your work and learn more about it now. Um, in this podcast series. So thank thank you so much, William, for, for putting your time aside and coming to oh, talk. Thank you. Thank you for, for having me. And I hope it was a, well, I hope, I hope the listeners get, get something out of it at least. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that they'll get a lot of out, lot out of this. Um, so thank you so much to the listeners uh, for tuning in to New Books and Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. Goodbye.